Okay, so there is this book. It's called The Spiritual and Art, Abstract Painting, 1890 to 1985. And not to be confused with Vasily Kandinsky's Concerning the Spiritual and Art. This is a completely different book. And it's nearly 500 pages, it's out of print, but you still can find some copies on eBay. And nearly every artist I know counts it as one of the most fascinating books on their bookshelf. Compiled by Maurice Tuckman, this book contains 17 essays by different art historians and was made to accompany a traveling exhibition of the same name. Starting out at Los Angeles County Museum of Art in 1985 and going on to Chicago and then The Hague. The essays take on the task of plotting how artists in approximately seven Western countries found their own unique way to abstraction and the spiritual influences that helped them make that final leap. My friend and artist, Mandy Wilson-Rosen, is back on the podcast. Welcome back, Mandy, to help me find out what all the fuss is about and why it's so beloved. The tome, as we called it, it's hefty, did not disappoint. Please come along with us as we focus our internal eyes and ascend to the higher dimension of the spiritual in art. Talks for Artists, a podcast offering small words of encouragement to all those shuffling along the artist's road. I'm your host, Amy Toledo. Hello, Mandy. Hey. Hey. So nice to be here. So nice to be here with you. I know. Thank you for joining me again as my um, co-hostess with Mostis. It is my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Mandolin Wilson-Rosen is joining me. She is a painter and multimedia artist. And you can find more of her work or see images of her work at her website, mandolinwilsonrosen.com. So yeah, the spiritual in art abstract painting... Mandy. (laughs) What a a heavy tome. What a work. Yes. As the kids say, it's a brick. As the kids say, that boy is thick. T H I C C. (laughs) Anyway, this is not, this book is called The Spiritual and Art Abstract Painting, 1890 to 1985. And this is not to be confused with Concerning the Spiritual and Art by Vasily Kandinsky. This is a whole separate thing. Right, which, that was the that was a funny little you know nod on the part of the editors I think. Oh yes. Oh yeah. Yeah. Of course, it was intentional. To me, I'm just like, why would they name it the same? I know. It's so confusing. confusing. But it must have been a, a wink, wink. Good point. <laughs> but anyway, the book is out of print, but never fear, it is available on eBay. I do not recommend buying it on Amazon because it's more expensive. On eBay, you can find better deals ranging from about $27 to $45. And it's like it's a better a better deal. I even found one for like $25 once. So it's out of print, you know. If you're lucky, it'll be in your library. 
we uh, we found a copy at Marist College in, in oh. our in our library. So if you're lucky, you know, if you dig deep, you might you two might be so lucky. Oh, that would be good. So yeah, it's um that would be a great find. But you might have to keep renewing it because the thing keeps on giving. It's the gift that keeps on giving. Exactly. It's 430 pages long. It is a book that has this golden triangle of text that says, you know, the spiritual and art of stark painting. And it's on like a radiating blue circle that's sort of Rothko-esque and it fades to black. And the edges of the book are painted black too. So it's very like a cult feeling, which I like that extra effort they went to. I do too. The art direction in in this book is beautiful you know note the triangular layout of the title and subtitle yes. there that's no that's no small thing no um coincidence we'll talk about that more later yeah so big props will be given to the graphic designer of this book because it's yeah. a work of art but the book basically includes 17 essays it also has many color and black and white illustrations loosely organized by country and it has some really cool uh, footnotes that Mandy noticed, too. Yeah, the, the footnotes even are laid out in these sort of stair-steppy type uh, layouts. Just um, I, I happen to notice, <laughs> slogging my way through uh, essay number four, that, yeah, that, that even, you know, it is kind of a treat to the eye. You, you turn to a page of footnotes, and I wish we had an image. The columns are laid out either often in an ascending triangle upward pointing triangle or a, or a downward pointing triangle which are symbolic and again we'll we'll hit on that later <laughs> but i think like the graphic designer would be so comforted to know that like we noticed and appreciated that yes. because it would be so easy to page page through that and not give it a second glance yeah there is this underlying sort of visible or vi visual you know spirit really to the book as well as the the uh, dry uh, academic <laughs> yes. at times. Yes, yes. So we, <laughs> it is very academic, and we will be discussing loosely eleven of the essays. It's a very dense material, but we we did a fun skim. Uh, <laughs> but we we encourage you to read it in depth. We found, or at least I found, the Germany section no. No problem with German art, but the writer of the German essay was a bit dry and water was pouring out of my eyes in boredom uh, reading it. But I still was able to glean some facts about Germany even so, but it was it was hard. So some are better written than others. Most are very well written. And this book is not just out of the blue. It's basically a catalog of sorts that accompanied a show at LACMA, a Los Angeles Contemporary Museum of Art. And it was in 1985, and it traveled to Chicago and The Hague. And the purpose of this whole endeavor, the purpose of this whole book, was to flesh out oh, the Western history of abstraction. Because basically all we had before that was Alfred Barr, uh, the head of the MoMA, the first director of the MoMA in New York. He had made this chart, and the chart laid out very neatly how everyone got to abstraction and it really leaned heavily on cubism and france and through cubism and france everyone funneled down to abstraction and you either ended up in the uh, geometric abstraction bucket or you ended up in the non-geometric abstraction bucket and everything was neat as a pin and then clement greenberg 
the famous abstract expressionist critic, swooped in and alley-ooped that whole idea, and, and, and they kind of crystallized this timeline of abstraction. And what the writers of these essays set out to do was to kind of show how every country came to their own, came to abstraction in their own way. So it's, it's very interesting. It's very illuminating. Very um, institutional critique, um, you know, which, which was pretty cool coming out in the 80s, in 1985. And just a quick um, correction, Amy, it's the Los Angeles County Museum of Art. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. Los Angeles County Museum mm -hmm. of Art. Thank you. I just kind of guessed on that. And I was yeah. like, oh, they get temporary, <laughs> but well, <laughs> that's what happens when you assume. Um, anyway, and another interesting part of this is that it has the word spiritual in it. And in the art world, then as now, even back in the 50s, 60s, intellectuals in, you know, different art circles were very squeamish with addressing the roots of abstraction because so many times it dovetailed with spiritual concerns. And that was not a comfortable realization for many. They'd rather just kind of cut that out and pretend it never happened. Um, right. so even, <laughs> I'm just going to, can I just jump in for a second? I found, yeah. I found that even, even some of the artists that, you know, we were reading about who were in the midst of this, these movements of, you know, sort of spiritual awakening in their art, even some of them uh, took issue with how, you know, woo woo the, the current zeitgeist was about um, auras and meditation and you know there was there was certainly um, an existential crisis going on even within some of the movements no you're absolutely right in some countries for example like germany and russia they referred to it as twaddle right <laughs> which i think yeah. bring back the word twaddle i think it's a good word and so there was yeah different countries had different tolerances it but then there's this great so basically it became clear to me that you know, it's not cool to be spiritual, basically. And and so there's even a great quote by Frank Stella, and he says, quote, I have no difficulty appreciating and up to a point understanding the great abstract painting of modernism's past, the painting of Kandinsky, Malevich, and Mondrian, but I do have trouble with their dicta their pleadings, their defense of abstraction. My feeling is that these reasons, these theoretical underpinnings of theosophy and anti-materialism have done abstract painting a kind of disservice, which has contributed to its present day plight. So, I mean, that pretty much sums it up for me. Yeah, and some, some um, artists, you know, really wanted to align themselves more with the um, enlightenment sort of the awakening of science that was happening, modern science at the time, the turn of the century, which they felt was in opposition to mystical ideas and ideas of spirituality. Yeah, they kind of grasped at that right. to kind of give it like a more of a, a more of a girdle, like, well, uh, 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 it's rooted in science. So yeah, it's more palatable. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, looking to math. And going along with the Frank Stella quote, I found it very interesting too, that kind of prejudice against artists that used sort of spiritual ideas to fuel their work, that when the Hilma F. Clint kind of treasure trove of work was discovered in that attic, the family attempted to give it as a whole, as a gift to the Moderna Museet. I'm not sure mm -hmm. if I'm saying that right. In Stockholm, right? Um, and in Stockholm, and they just rejected it because they just thought, oh, okay, this is some kooky ladies 
uh, cuckoo stuff and her stuffed in her attic. And they didn't, I think that spiritual side of it scared them in the same way that Frank Stella was a bit squeamish. Sure. You know, there was a difference at the time between spirituality and religion. Um, religion was considered by some to be more um, orthodox. Uh, I mean, we're, we're talking about religion in a, in a, a gen, general speaking. There were so many religions um, that that writers were aware of at the time, but you know, mysticism was defined much more loosely. Spirituality had had implications beyond orthodox religion. Yes, and and in a way, they kind of were escaping religion and and fleeing like uh, we'll get to it later but Mondrian himself was he had grown up as a strict Calvinist and he was clutching at these kind of spiritual movements just to break free so it was kind of in opposition like you're saying to religion in a lot of ways right many people thought that um, religion was um, the the main difference was that in religion for let's say orthodox uh, Christianity or Catholicism for example there had to be a mediator, a priest, or a, um, even the saints, someone between you and you know this sort of spiritual enlightenment or nirvana. <laughs> and then, whereas with these other spiritual ideas, it was a much more direct experience. People thought it was much much more highly individual. Yeah, that's a really out. that's a really great way of putting it. I I never thought of it that way. I love that idea of like you're it's kind of a priestless, rabbiless. Mm-hmm. A religion of the self. That's so interesting. So, so these essay writers, you know, you see this book and it's titled The Spiritual and Art. These essay writers are not at all uh, what you'd expect. They are hard-boiled <laughs> scholars. <laughs> they research everything to death, uh, hence the footnotes. There's so many footnotes, the graphic designer could like make shapes of out of them. <laughs> God, if like that gives reading, you a hint, reading um, like true crime or something at some at times, there was this very sort of like step by step, evidence based, um, you know, laying out of who knew whom, who who was influenced by whom, who was aware of who was writing, sort of you know, highly factual. <laughs> yeah, they almost like jumped in to this void that the void that Frank Stella kind of illustrated this this like ignoring of the side of abstraction that scholars had done up till then. They jumped into the deep end with the like clear eyed scientists and just reported on their findings and without trying to not have any bias. Oh, and they kind of revealed the results of the fruits of this experiment that they did a revealing a very complex kind of mycelium or web that really connected country to country, culture to culture in a much more complicated way than the Alfred Barr uh, neat little two funnel chart did. Right. I love the mycelium as a, as a metaphor for this, these like underground networks, because let's remember this was way before the time of the internet, you know, artists in one country weren't necessarily instantly aware of what artists in another country were doing, but there were these trickle down uh, influences among groups of people, among spiritual cults, um, among writings that were published and circulated and, um, and information spread in a much slower, more indirect, but still interconnected way. Right, exactly. Like it wasn't, there was no internet, but in the traditional way, like a person from Russia would visit New Mexico. Then everyone in New Mexico, the artist in New Mexico would learn about um, Kandinsky from that person. Or 
a theosophical, which was one of the major spiritual movements, pamphlet would be circulating around the countries and people would have that in common and learn, you know, see the shapes and diagrams in those pamphlets. Um, or, But then also country to country specifically, they would be inspired by their own folk history or like tribal history of their the different cultures within their own country um, would also inspire abstraction. So it was a like you said, it was very trickly, very trickle down. Um, and and we Mandy and I discovered that this book is beloved. I mean, you only have to mention the title of this book, and everyone's clamoring like, "I have this on my shelf. I love this book. It is the best book." And it's so funny because it's out of print, and but it's literally it feels like it's the most popular book amongst artists of today, and in, in terms of people I know, there was just such a clamor about it. It really astonished me, and and. We had done a, a clubhouse room where we asked everyone to make book suggestions. And so many people recommended this book that I thought it would be fun to kind of like crack it open and see what all the fuss is about. <laughs> In fact, that was, um, I'll admit, that was the first time I'd heard of this book. I was not aware of this book until that very um, book list clubhouse that you hosted. So thank you uh, for, to those of you who put that on the list. Yeah, thank you so much, because I also hadn't heard of it. Now I feel like I, it, it's, it's like a textbook. It's that well-researched. It's as if you decided to do a podcast about like Jansen's history of art. It's very, very dense, wouldn't you say, Mandy? The dense is not, I mean, <laughs> denser than a neutron star. I mean, it, it really, it really <laughs> lives up to its cosmological subjects in that way. But it has great photo uh, photos and pictures too. So if you're not into you know, a high scholarly reading, you can also just flip through, which is also very gratifying. It's incredibly beautiful. And I, I learned about so many artists I wasn't aware of before and, and definitely, you know, viewing so many of these incredible artworks for the first time. Yeah, very like obscure people, people you wouldn't know about. Okay, so I wanted to talk about the word spiritual a bit more. So in the book, when they meet, when they talk about spiritual, as you already mentioned, Mandy, they're not talking about church in a traditional sense. In fact, they're kind of anti-church. Uh, this The word spiritual is more connoting, like, it's a huge range of things. It could mean ghosts, spirits, the fourth dimension, uh, Kabbalah, theosophy, yoga, American nature poets, uh, tantric art, mandalas, zen, uh, Native American shamanism, just about anything that's beyond what we currently see vibrations vibrations uh, auras auras yeah that's it that's one of the bigger ones so it's just anything beyond what we currently see and it's all viewed as we mentioned through the cold cold lens of scholarship (laughs) (laughs) i just think it's funny you know these very sort of cold um, scholarly writers you know really taking on this um warm fuzzy idea (laughs) that's kind of the best part of it for me yeah because it it kind of gives it legitimacy in a way because you identify with the writer a little bit because some of this stuff is crazy. Like, wait, he thought he could see out of a secret eye in the back of his head. Okay, cool, cool, cool. Um, you know, some of this stuff's kind of bananas. And so it's when the person's very um, thoughtful and kind of really going for the evidence and all that, it's, it makes it a little bit easier to get through. <laughs> yeah, it gives it some gravitas. Yeah, some gravitas. Um, so I wanted to just give a special shout out to Theosophy 
that is one of these, this is one of these big widespread spiritualist movements that swept the world basically. And it's mentioned in almost every country. So even though there were other things going on, I just wanted to give a quick overview of that so that when we mention it, you know, everybody in the audience, you know, maybe if not heard of it, this this rare um, weird religion from 1875, <laughs> you have a uh, like a general understanding. So it was invented by a woman named Helena Blavatsky and her partner Henry Steele Olcott. Although it's mostly Helena, like she wrote most of the stuff. Um, she was a Russian immigrant. They started Theosophy in New York City and eventually moved to India. But it was the reason it was so popular is because it basically reduced the basic truths of all the world religions and philosophies to one common denominator. So it had, it was like, it was like the poo poo platter. It had everything, a little bit of something for everyone. <laughs> and, you know, it was on the lazy season rotating and people were like, Oh, I like that. I like that. And it, you, it satisfied all. And it had a, a sprinkling of Darwin's uh, theory of evolution in mm -hmm. there too. And, and that was put through an occult filter so it just became this delicious snack and everyone couldn't resist it. And it swept and it swept the globe. Um, so that when we talk about theosophy, just think of it that way as a rotating poo-poo platter yeah, I like that. Uh, with a dash of occult uh, sprinkled in there. <laughs> so uh, without further ado, we're going to go, go into the countries. It's, there's just a, maybe like five countries and it kind of, um, this is the meat of the book. This is how they're kind of building their argument that abstraction came to fruition in different countries through different ways and not all through the lens of Cubism in France. But ironically, we're going to start with France. <laughs> so Mandy, right. would you mind taking us through the French country? Sure. Abstraction um, in France. Yeah. So, I, you know, the the way that I understand what was happening in France is through one of the essays in this book, which is called Sacred Geometry. French Symbolism and Early Abstraction, written by the art historian Robert P. Welsh. And um, Welsh dives right into some big things that were sort of umbrella ideas that were happening for a lot of the artists at this time. And when we say at this time, we're talking about around the turn of the century from the 1880s into the 1910s, let's say. So Welsh takes us through this idea that um, the Theosophical text, which Amy just sort of you know introduced this idea of Theosophy, Helena Blavatsky and her cohorts. Blavatsky had written a book called Isis Unveiled, which delved into imagery from ancient Egypt, and another uh, essay called The Secret Doctrine, which um, elaborated on those ideas. This was at the same time as some other key texts that people were reading. It was sort of in the in the air. A writer named Charles F. Dupuis. He, this guy, um, he had a bias toward astronomy, but like Blavatsky, he was trying to synthesize, find the common ground between religions all around the world. So, you know, what, what did Buddhism, Hinduism, Tantric and Cabal and Christianity all have in common, among others? So something that Dupuis had come up with were some of the common themes among the world religions were there was this dualistic structure that many of them had as part of their imagery and iconography. What do I mean by dualistic? That, that there was a, a duality between heaven and earth, also the male and the female, uh, sun and the moon dualities. But also, in addition to these dualities, there was a tripartite godhead or this concept of mind, matter, and spirit, which he found continually 
from religion to religion. And then there was another writer, Richard P. Knight, who had a seminal essay called Symbolic Language of Ancient Art and Mythology, an inquiry, which was written about the same time. I don't have the exact date. But these essays were published and circulated. And we'll find later in the essay, I discovered that uh, Paul Gauguin, who was greatly influenced by Blavatsky and theosophical thought, he was kind of responsible for passing these leaflets around to some of his friends, the Nabi, who were symbolist painters. So this is where it all begins, according to Welsh, that these pamphlet that these authors had diagrams which are illustrated beautifully in the essay there's one on hindu cosmogony that blavatsky drew and another one of chaldeo jewish cosmogony which look like pentagrams inscribed within circles surmounted by a pyramid with like lines radiating from the center of them I mean, really, it's like something you would see on a tattoo in the Lower East Side, like really sort of beautiful <laughs> geometric inscriptions, uh, forms within forms. And then also um, in the air, besides these geometric symbols that, that were found in these diagrams, were ideas about alchemy and also astrology, both of which were thought to be the roots of ancient Christian and Jewish sects that, um, that lean toward the occult. And I think we should define the occult Amy, yes, um, because that also that also has a like a wide ranging definition. I mean, Welsh defines the occult as that which is hidden. I think you know, growing up in the eighties, I thought of the occult as that which was satanic. Yeah, totally. <laughs> but there's a there, but there's a much broader definition, at least in this essay, about the occult as anything that um, that deals with that which is hidden from what we understand to be physical matter or the visible. Mm. Um, so we have the diagrams from the occult text. And in these diagrams, you know, not only were there geometric shapes, so we had the cross, uh, the cruciform that was often repeated, triangles, squares, circles, but also numbers, symbols of astrology and the planet. And then, you know, people really got into numbers. Like this was something that Gauguin was apparently really into. He was, in, he was into numerology. There were all these ideas, especially among the theosophists, about numbers and, and what they meant. There was this idea that odd numbers were masculine, even numbers were feminine. There were symbolic associations with the numbers as well. For example, one was related to the vertical line, which symbolized fire, the male sign, or an upward pointing spirit, vertical rays, in other words, solar energy. And uh, likewise, the number two was aligned with the horizon or female energy, also water, earth, matter, and lunar energy. So mm. these two polar opposites, one and two. But then it goes on, you know, three, the triangle, the triune godhead, again, body, mind, and spirit. Then there's four, which represented the, the square of terrestrial life. They were really into pyramids as a symbol because the pyramid encapsulated both the number four and the number three. So it had all these things going on, the, the terrestrial horizontality, but also the triune godhead. So you could go on and on. Number seven was considered to be the most sacred to those who were into the occult. Seven represented life. The hexagon was a six-pointed figure, but the, a dot in the middle made it seven. And that was supposed to represent the union of four and three, but also the center point sort of tying everything else together and macrocosm of the world. It was, it was just sort of this all-encompassing number. Then there were numbers that were considered bad, like eight and nine. But these were considered bad because they were divisible. You know, they weren't prime numbers. And then 10 meant this was represented by the circle or seven plus three, which meant unity of all things. So 
you know, I, I just really got into these numbers and the geometric signs that represented them. That makes a lot shapes. of sense because your um, yeah. work right now is dealing with numbers. <laughs> yes, I wonder if it'll funny? generate some interesting work. <laughs> right, which um, which I wasn't even aware of all of the history of numerology, you know, when I, when I made my current work, but now I am. So, you know, in addition to the numbers and the geometric signs, a few other things emerged from this essay. One was that there was this history that the theosophists were coming out of, which was Rosicrucianism. The writer's name was Peladon. I noted um, him. <laughs> yes, th that's sort of like where theosophy came from. The Rose um, Cross. Yes, the Rose and Cross, which is what Rosicrucianism means. And there were some other symbols that came out of that tradition. One was the Ouroboros, which some of you probably know what that is. Oh, the snake eating its own tail? Yes, right, which symbolized eternity and the cycles of life and death. And then another symbol was the caduceus, which is, it looks like a tau, which is a, a cross with sort of an oval on the top, wrapped by a, a snake, which you might recognize as a symbol of, of medicine nowadays, right? Oh Isn't yeah, that like a, wow, that's, that was that's from like, Rosicrucian. Yes, symbol of the Hippocratic Oath. The doctors you know, vow to, to help people. So the caduceus and some of these leaflets that were being circulated around. And one of them was called La Lotus Blue, which was a theosophical magazine. And some of these artists in Gauguin's circle were, were making art for the magazine. And we start to see some of these symbols pop up. One of them was named Claude Emile Schiffenecker, who did, who did the cover illustration. And there's. Oh, there's yeah. One. I remember Schiffenecker because I was reading a um, biography of Gauguin and he would call him Schoof. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, so they were friends. They were, they were on a, a first syllable basis, I guess, those guys. Yeah, Schoof. <laughs> The thing I love about what Schiffenecker drew on the cover of La Lotus Blue in 1892, well, we, you know, and it's cited by Welsh in this essay as like an early instance of some pentagrams and some Ouroboros is, and there's a, what he calls a pseudo-caduceus. <laughs> My favorite word probably from the whole book. A pseudo-caduceus? Pseudo-caduceus. That's what Schoof, wait, wait, that's what Schoof invented? <laughs> yeah. It's a, sort of a fake caduceus. It's a so Schoof invented the pseudo-caduceus. <laughs> right. Put it in your fun fact file. Um, anyway, so, you know, Gauguin was interested in all these ideas and reading all these pamphlets, and he starts to incorporate significant numbers into his paintings. There's a painting called Yellow Christ that's illustrated in the book where it's noted that cold analytical evidence <laughs> that yes. Gauguin was very... The, only the coldest. Right. With, um, you know, it is proved that Gauguin was very specific about the numbers of figures that he had in his, in his landscape. There are these women at the foot of the cross. Uh, we see Christ on a cross with a field of workers beyond, and there are, you know, there are three in the background and four in the foreground because the number seven was important. But then it goes on from there. There are... There's a Gauguin painting that's that's got a woman encapsulated in a mandorla or sort of halo shape. And and it talks about the Nabi, which is the group of painters founded by Paul Serussier. And included in that group, the Nabi, were another Paul, Paul Ranson, we have Paul Gauguin, and even Edward Vuillard. Was this I know. Yeah, the, the Vuillard I posted is the weirdest Vuillard <laughs> I've ever, I ever done seen. Yeah, it is... It is called Self-Portrait with Sister, I think. And he's kind of making out with his sister. Like, it's the weirdest painting. I don't get it. It doesn't look like a sisterly embrace. It also doesn't, it doesn't look like many Vuillard paintings I've seen, but... 
It's but, early. It's early Vuillard. Right. Nabi, um, what the Nabi Vuillard is not the same as, I guess, the... Yes. Would, he, would he be Impressionist or no? Expressionist? I think he fits into Impressionism. But the, what's interesting about this painting is that the figures are melding into one. And that was an idea in Theosophy and, and in the spiritual text that a lot of people are reading is that, you know, sub, subject and object, boundaries between subject and object would be dissolved that there was this higher consciousness yes. that uh, one could reach by letting go of the, you know, the boundaries between one and the cosmos. So I think, you know, perhaps that's what Boyard was into there. Who knows? <laughs> that's just my personal take on it. That's a very um, nice way to look at it. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, in, in that circle and sort of following, I mean, the Navi were, were like a cult, a cult. They were, they were really into, they considered themselves a secret society. And Serussier, you know, was one of their, leaders and that you know Serussier was also like like Gauguin into all of these writers and he would go and listen to them speak and, and he would kind of go back to his his painter friends and and you know spread the spread the dogma around and lo and behold Paul Ranson and some of the other Nabi you start to see pentagrams appearing and trefoils and cruciform shape appearing in their you know mystical landscapes with figures and also there's a beautiful painting by Paul Ranson where there's a Buddha with lotus flowers sort of superimposed onto a crucifix in um, two different color schemes so there was definitely, you know, a lot of like mixing of religious thought going on. Um, and I, I love the Paul Cerisier paintings because it was like these weird unexplained geometric 3D forms floating in the sky. Oh, yeah. So it would just be like the Watt, you know, the Sen, and then there's the night sky, and then there's just a weird golden cylinder levitating yes. above the ocean. <laughs> yes, and and Radon was into that kind of imagery too. Odilon Radon, I know some of you have Oh, Radon the on... symbolist. Yeah, yes. Odilon Radon, yeah. Yes, you know, Serussier and Radon had that in common. Like there would just be this orb floating in an otherwise naturalistic space. If anyone's familiar with the the print by Radon the Vision, uh, where it, it just looks like a floating eyeball, radio. Yes, of course. Yes. <laughs> in this sort of like neoclassical courtyard with people sort of gaping at it. Yeah, these artists were interested in the unseen in this way. So oh, thank you. That's very, very interesting. I skipped the French essay, so that was all very interesting to me. Yeah, me too. So yeah, so that was what was going on in France. There were lots of like numbers, symbols, uh, triangles, crosses, circles, etc. But but now let's let's travel over to Sweden. Just for a quick sec. In Sweden they were really into theosophy they love themselves some spirit drawing and seances they were just eating that stuff up and then edvard monk who was norwegian but sweden at the time was kind of like um ruled norway so they were kind of like under the umbrella and he had an exhibit in hilma afklint's studio building in stockholm so she saw his work, and that was in 1894. So she saw that. And I think the essayist thinks that Monk showed her how to visualize psychology in art, which I find interesting. And, and, and throughout the book, Monk does play a really big role, kind of like a little seed that germinates in a lot of different places. And then I wanted to mention <laughs> that one of the fun facts or scandalous revelations I made was... I went to um, David Zwerner uptown to see the current Hilma F. Clint show, 
And what it is, it's it's one small dark room with a single security guard. And there are, I think, eight gray gray paper framed pieces on the wall in the dark. And they have like watercolor gouache imagery on them. And they're her Tree of Knowledge series. And it was a series given, gifted to um, Steiner, Rudolf Steiner. So that's why they have it. And it's not part of the Hilma F. Clint estate. Anyway, I'm I'm I know from watching the Hilma F. Clint documentary eight thousand times that she was an accomplished figure drawer. She had studied, and like even as a woman, she was given access to like a lot more figure drawing uh, instruction than the average person at that time. So I'm looking at these figures that she's drawn in the very final piece. So I think it's like number eight, and it looks crazy, <laughs> like. The butts are like stretched out and drooping and nothing makes sense. Anatomically, it just, it look, it looks bananas. Like, I don't even know what on earth was happening. And this is from somebody who's not only a skilled figure draftsman, but she is a, a really good realist painter. Turns out in this essay, the essayist reveals that she would channel the spirit Amaliel while she was making her work because she was a medium. And if Amaliel drew the figures the wrong way, then she felt it was disrespectful to correct him. <laughs> so she left it. Amazing. So if you go to the show, you have a chuckle with me at the last piece when you see that crazy figure drawing because you'll know it's because it's Amaliel's fault. It's Amaliel's fault. Um, and then this, uh, you know, monk also with his pals, super into the occult seances, theosophy, the whole nine yards. And I found a really good quote about how influential and important Edvard Monk was at the time. And this is actually a quote from Joseph Boyce. So it's, it's more current, but he says, but what flows with monk is something spiritual, a spiritual river. Sometimes there was also a sort of demonic electricity that flowed into the river. Apparitions are perceived too. Upper and lower experiences are drawn together. Therefore, it cannot be the tree that had interested him, neither the tree nor the landscape in itself, but he did provide for these insane circles, the same as he does with all other works. These he saw. He did not see any trees. <laughs> which I think it, it, it's just how crazy and revolutionary he looked to people and still does that we can't discount how important he was. Yeah, he was um, he was really into mysticism. He he hung out with mediums, as it turned out, Monk did, which would explain his sort of fascination with auras. Yeah, it's very on brand, too, because that whole area of Sweden and Norway were just couldn't get enough of that stuff. Right. Very on brand. Um, so Sweden was just a quick dip. But now this is the incredibly boring section about Germany. But I but don't worry, I found exciting things in it. I I I cried tears of boredom <laughs> so you don't have to. Um basically <laughs> Germany was divided. You've got one side, they want to embrace all the spiritual stuff. One side, they're just like, this is crazy. Uh, stop being ridiculous. <laughs> so on the one side, the, the believers is Kandinsky. He's not technically German. He's Russian. 
But he came to Germany. He taught at the Bauhaus. Um, the Bauhaus was closed by the Nazis. He fled to France. Some of his works were, you know, destroyed in the degenerate art show and purge. So, you know, I consider him very much part of the German art scene. You know, he was interested in expressionism and fauvism. He really loved how these movements embraced anti-naturalism. So they were changing the colors that weren't natural. They were changing the way figures looked. Uh, they weren't adhering to realism or naturalism. And he was really interested in that. And then the Bauhaus it's, itself really embraced this like purity and spirituality. And it, for example, this artist, Johannes Itten, he taught there, but he would teach in monk's robes and he shaved his head to look like a monk. So that kind of gives you a visual of how serious they took their spiritualism <laughs> over there. But Kandinsky, he came from, I guess, maybe Russian folk art. Maybe that was what he was thinking of. But he didn't think that the road to abstraction was paved with geometry because mm -hmm. geometry, in his mind, was associated with like neckties <laughs> or like a carpet or some folk, like the way decorative folk art looked. He just thought it wasn't going to be taken seriously if he did geometry. So then when you look at his paintings, it's very organic and like curving shapes. It's on purpose because he didn't want to look like a necktie or a carpet um, because, you know, he was insecure. He's trying to move his work into abstraction. He doesn't think anyone's going to accept it. So he's trying to like stack his deck. He a big part of Kandinsky is he really believed you could see sound and hear color. That's a really big thing for him, a synesthesia. And he wrote a book about it. And that's the one called concerning the spiritual in art in 1911. And in that book, he asked artists to express their inner lives in abstract terms. Um, and, and he considered the psychology of colors and language of form and to kind of think of making art like a musician does. Like when a musician writes a song, they don't have to write this realistic thing. They can imagine things. They could, you know, come up with this abstract sound you know, in his day, especially. So he was like, why can't we as artists do that? Why do we have to just copy nature? So that was a lot, a lot of his point in his book. Now that's the Kandinsky side. So that's like the uh, spiritualist side. Now we come to the other side, the hard boiled side. <laughs> so the German culture was anti mysticism, anti twaddle. Um, they were anti expressionist. They were anti abstraction. They, this is a quote somebody said, expressionism hysteria with a half-baked religious mystique, which I think, yeah, that's pretty much how they thought of Kandinsky and his crew. This was also the birth of Dada, which, you know, was kind of angry and intellectual. They weren't really spiritual in any way. And then we have Rudolf Steiner splitting off from theosophy, creating, okay, this is hard to pronounce. I even did like the YouTube help me pronounce this word thing. <laughs> but his, his movement, his splinter group was anthroposophy. And basically, he kind of based, it was like theosophy with a scientific side, quote unquote, but it was like more pseudoscience. But he would kind of tell his students that if you meditate on objects, like he'd pay, make people meditate on a seed, um, you'd experience like cosmic worlds and colors and forms would float by and you'd be in space and you'd become pure and there'd be all these kind of tests and things. And I think I was starting to read that going, this sounds a little Scientology. 
technology like but i don't know i don't want to anyway it's it sounded something. it sounded a wee bit scientology-ish to right. me Star, Star, steiner influenced so many people i mean he founded waldorf education and also was into biodynamic agriculture you know oh which yeah we yeah a lot of attention to today so yeah it wasn't all hooey no he wasn't he wasn't all he wasn't all it's just that he is i i feel like he's a product a little bit of his german roots because he's kind of reacting to his culture around him which was like this is twaddle. <laughs> Let me yeah. make it more scientifically based, you know, so right. it's accepted more. He also was interested, we'll talk about this more, the fourth dimension, which I don't know if you've heard people say like, oh, it's like we're in the matrix. We're in a simulation and they're, you know, we're all just going through our lives, but there's this, you know, matrix like reality that we can't access. It's kind of a little bit of what he thought, too, that there was this other world. And if we meditate on the seed long enough, we'll get there. <laughs> kind of like mm -hmm. we'll, we'll have full reveal of our you know, true world. That was one of his things. And then moving along to Italy. Um, Italy was so cute because <laughs> they were obsessed with spirit photography. They love spirit photography. They, they, I guess some spirit photos were coming along from France. They were into it. They love seeing all the ectoplasm and the ghosts and the double images and the auras. And they were just like, I can't get enough of this. And so seeing all those spirit photos so much, the seeing the blurring, the repetition, the transparency, all those things that are in spirit photos, these kind of, you know, luminous bodies hovering around people that really inspired their Italian futurist movement, which right. was basically where they showed movement and dynamism. So I'm sure you've all seen that sculpture where it's like a, it looks, it's like a brass sculpture of a figure walking and it seems to be rippling in motion. It's Umberto um, Bacchioni. It. Yes. Umberto Bacchioni. Um, that is sort of, a cubo futurist which is cubism plus italian futurism sculpture but you can kind of see this sort of blurring motion that was kind of inspired by their obsession with spiritualist photos which i found very interesting and uh hopefully everyone's enjoying this but i'm gonna just keep going <laughs> Yeah, so there's a lot to get through. So we're just to get through. through country by country yeah so Bear don't don't everyone don't worry i only have Two more countries. Well, th we can see how it goes. But I have two, two to three, and I'll be quick, and it'll be a uh, fun and factoid rich. Um, <laughs> so, going to U.S., the U.S.A., good old U.S.A. There were basically three ways people got to abstraction. One through the philosophers that were like the reliance on the self, nature uh, writers like Walt Whitman, Thoreau, Emerson. The That's one. Way. Um, yes, yeah. the transcendentalists. Yes, exactly. And also William Blake, who's technically British, but we're going to lump him in. Then the second way is through Native American art, because there was this crazy exhibition at the MoMA at the time that inspired everybody. And then the last is the uh, New Mexico in the West, where, as I hinted, a Russian person came and cross-pollinated there. So the first, the first category, the philosophers, um, you've got Whitman, Thoreau, Emerson, Blake. You've got Basically, this idea that abstraction is rooted in landscape. So artists like Albert Pinkham Ryder, Arthur Dove, George O'Keefe, Marston Hartley, um, all came to abstraction through the landscape. And that's all also inspired by these writers. 
In fact, you can see this Arthur Dove painting which is called Distraction. And it is, the composition is directly inspired by a William Blake composition called The Body of Abel Found by Adam and Eve. So basically the painting is, the Blake painting is like these figures, there's Adam with his legs crossed, kind of in a pallid white in the foreground. And then behind him is like a red sun. And then um, Eve is weeping over a body and then there's a grave and the sun in the background has these like lines or hashes through it. And so the dove painting is a landscape, but it's got the same kind of sun with the, with the lines drawn through it. And it has these kind of tree forms or sticks coming up and they're crossed just like the legs of Adam. So it's really interesting because it's like an abstraction based on this Blake composition. I found that really, really cool. And I love that. I, I really love that you isolated that that one little you know duo. I love. I love. Yeah. I mean, that was the SAS work, but I'm just um, elevating the elevation. <laughs> <laughs> but another thing that Arthur Dove said, okay, I related this so much because it's like, have you ever, as an artist, like made something and you're not even sure if it's art? <laughs> like you made something, you're just like, uh, am I even brave enough to show anyone this? Is this even, like what is this? Is this the craziest thing? He wrote, um, he, he made these six abstractions in 1910, and they were kind of the first time he had made anything abstract. And he wrote, this is Arthur Dove, I have a curious sort of feeling about some of my things. I, I hate to show them. I am perfectly inconsistent about it. I am afraid people won't understand, and I hope that they won't, and I'm afraid <laughs> that they will. <laughs> and I just thought that perfectly encapsulates what it's like. And then, um, as you mentioned, uh, Mandy, the evidence is always there. So um, these essays like receipts. So Marsden Hartley wrote, I read Emerson as if it were the Bible. So, you know, just kind of backing up that assertion that these artists really uh, rooted and sprouted from these writers. Yeah. And, Ma and Max Weber, the Jewish American painter who lived in New York. He also was heavily influenced by Emerson and Walt Whitman, as well as Blavatsky, you know, just our, back, back to Blavatsky. She's oh, yeah. everywhere. She's everywhere. Okay. So now that we've kind of covered the philosopher's leg of America, okay, this, this section is hilarious because basically in Native American art, as I mentioned, there was this big show and it was called Indian Art of the U.S. It was in 1941 at the MoMA. And it literally rocketed across the whole city. Everyone was just shook by this show. And it was a huge hit, especially amongst the abstract expressionists. And so the essay takes this opportunity to literally take Pollock down. <laughs> like they just, because he, not, not in a negative, not in a bad way, but he, he dared to assert that he was not um, aware of Native American art or like, didn't use it as inspiration. And so this scholar came at him like a rabid dog and was just like receipt number one, receipt number two, receipt number three. And then they were just like, you know, a case closed. So basically he went, Pollock went to this exhibit and in the exhibit, they had actual Navajo Indians um, performing in the space, creating these intricate sand paintings. And if you look them up, they're amazing and very abstract looking. 
And the and they would use these sand paintings if there was a, a person, like say a mother's baby was sick. The sand paintings would be made and the mother would sit on top of the image and the shaman would perform a healing ritual over her. So, you know, probably that wasn't occurring at the MoMA, but they were showing some of the sand painting techniques and Pollock was extremely interested in that, especially in the shamanism angle. So, you know, Bar, uh, Albert, is it Alfred? Alfred Alfred Barr's chart um, says that Pollock came from surrealism, but nope, he didn't. (laughs) He came from Native American art. And here are all the (laughs) evidence-based facts, (laughs) proof. Yeah. So, okay. So the author says he borrowed with specificity and intent from particular works of American Indian art known to him. The similarity is so high as to disprove his assertion. So they were just like taking no prisoners. Sorry, just we should say just for clarity that this essay is is W. Jackson Rushing. Is that right? The ritual oh. and myth essay. Oh yes, yes. Sorry, thank you very much. Um, yeah, you. just let's give credit where credit is due. Ritual and myth: Native American culture and abstract expressionism by W. Jackson Rushing. Yes, well, well done, Rushing. Take, take Pollock down. Yes. And so the the assertion he's referring to is when Pollock said, people find reference to American Indian art and calligraphy in parts of my paintings. That wasn't intentional. Probably was the result of early enthusiasm and memories. And this guy was like, oh, really? <laughs> and then he's like, brought his receipts. And so one of the assertions is that when he made his drip paintings, the drip paintings, he would stand in the middle of the work which is what these like shaman um, sand painters would do. They would become like part of the work, stand within the work. Um, he'd also add sand to his paintings, which was just kind of like, mm-hmm. Um, and that one of the sand, the sand was added to the painting Magic Mirror, in case you wanted to take a look. Also, his work Mural was based specifically on a Hohokam pottery bowl of a humpback Pueblo fertility spirit who was playing a flute that was on exhibit at the show. Also, he had many of these pictographs that he had seen in the show drawn in his sketchbooks. And then also he had a piece called Night Sounds, a painting that directly references an Inuit mask that he saw in a publication that he owned. So the author was just like gleefully taking him down. Which is all well and good. You know, we all have our influences. And of course, as, yeah. As do, as do all of the artists in this book. But it, the, the, the fact that Pollock was sort of a denier of this was, you know, egregious. Right. But he wasn't, he wasn't appropriating really. or well, He really wasn't, in my opinion at least, he wasn't doing anything wrong with, you know, being inspired by these works. It wasn't, it didn't seem like it crossed the line into appropriation to me. But the fact that he was just like, what are you talking about? This is all coming you know, straight from my head, like, you know, <laughs> Athena from Zeus. It's like, mm. and I just love that he was just like, point number one, point number two, and like, uh, shot some holes in that. So that was good. Coldly and clinically. Yes, coldly and clinically. And then as I alluded to earlier, the New Mexico influence, uh, have our my beloved Agnes Pelton and her group, the Transcendental Painting Group. She also worked with Raymond Johnson. And they got influenced by Kandinsky through a visit by an artist named Nikolai Rorich. And he was Russian. And he came with his art group, The Flaming Heart. 
which mm-hmm. was a group of international artists. And so he was kind of spreading the good word of Kandinsky to New Mexico. So it's really fascinating when you think of American extraction. It's not one line. It's, it's landscape and Native American history and this Russian guy. <laughs> right. Plus, so like the transcendentalist reading, uh, writings that everyone is reading and you know, all these other sources. Right. Yes. I mean, I tend to oversimplify. That's just my personality. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So um, please know that this is a very light, superficial skimming of the book. And um, you will get a much richer experience if you read it for yourself. But um, Mm -hmm. these are the highlights, at least for me. Our quickest read, our quickest cliff notes. Okay. And if you'll bear with me for a bit more, we're kind of at the last country, Russia. I could not get enough of this. And there were two essays on Russia, thank God, but I could not get enough. It was fascinating. Um, So like Germany, they were very hard-boiled, anti-mystical, did not, uh, were not, they were anti-occult. And so the artists were kind of fighting against that cultural kind of attitude, trying to find spirituality. In fact, there was a fist fight. And the fist fight occurred through Malevich has invented his suprematism, which was kind of these white backgrounds with geometric shapes on it. It enraged his fellow artists. So much, though, that he got in a fist fight with an artist named Tatlin in 1915. Because Tatlin thought his ideas were, quote, a hymn to despair and, quote, a corpse of painterly art. Just like mic drop. I don't know. That's pretty harsh. It was really threatened by suprematism. So that was a fist fight that occurred. That kind of illustrates how radical this these these works were. Then, you might know Totlin by the by his famous tower sculpture that looks like a spiral going up, like a sort of deconstructed Eiffel Tower. Um, anyway, oh, that's something you. I re- that's something I remember from Jansen's history of art. Vladimir yeah, it's Totlin. it's good to have a visual a visual description because otherwise it just kind of blends together. But do go um, on. Oh, okay. So. I was just cracking myself up a little bit because there's this whole section about nothing. They were obsessed with nothing. Like the Russian avant-garde was getting really, really into the concept of nothing. Like there's the symbolist art group. They, they had like, um, I think it was like a playwright and he wrote in the dream, all is white. So basically that is their complete inspiration. They love this idea of nothing nothingness is a zero forms um the cult of emptiness le grand neant <laughs> Malevich said the world is nothing suprematism was spiritual purity and emptiness there were even the nothingists who wrote nothing read nothing and printed nothing <laughs> there was a cubo futurist poet gnedov who wrote the poem of the end, which was just blank pages till you got to the end of the book, and then it was written the end. I loved it. Um, and then uh, I think critic or artist Alexandra Benoit wrote of Malevich's Black Square, a painting uh, called The Black Square. It is an integrated and very powerful philosophy, the art of the futurists, is the total affirmation of the cult of emptiness, the gloom of nothing. And to me, the fact that they got to abstraction through obsession with nothingness is just so fascinating. I can't. There was a, there, just for context, maybe there was a lot of thought at the time from what I gleaned from some of the other essays um, about the distinction between thought 
and matter and whether mm -hmm. thought could be considered matter or vice versa or if you know matter was actually nothing or if thought was nothing you know there, there was a lot there's a lot of that going around yeah sort of existential you know very much reasons. so like they were almost turning inward to the point where nothing mattered nothing was outside of their themselves that's sort of this idea mm -hmm. and and they i want to say they were really into yoga but the truth is they weren't into yoga they were secretly into yoga but they rebranded it and they called it zaum when you say they are you talking about certain artists uh, uh, certain russian artists of the time like um you know i mean i'm kind of referring to everybody okay because like <laughs> Okay, so the artists, the artists were, okay, so there's a concept in yoga called Samdhi, S-A-M-D-H-I, and it's an expansion of consciousness, body perfection, you know, yoga is working on your body, the perfection of form, and through these, and through this bodily activity, you, you are on a path to enlightenment, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So Zaum, which was their idea, uh, was an expansion of sight. So you would train your mind to see beyond the edges of your peripheral vision. Yes. They're also interested in man's new body, controlling the body um, through food, exercise. Even I think Stalin would, would um, ask people to perform like gymnastics or a feats of physical fitness in you know as a celebration or rally type thing there was like a kind of a zeitgeist to to perfect the body there was a, a surge of vegetarianism so it was it was a larger culture cultural thing as well as an artistic thing but it kind of made me chuckle that one of the ways russians got to abstraction was through yoga right well you know that, <laughs> because I, they're I like so that. because we just got through with emptiness and gloom and then they're just like oh and also yoga too <laughs> well but it makes sense because that <laughs> idea of super consciousness that you were talking about with the the zaum um idea the, this idea of the you know um higher perceptual plane or vision beyond the periphery that was that was happening elsewhere that too that was happening in the u.s and Followers of theosophy, again, you know, we're interested that the whole idea of the fourth dimension, it ties in neatly with all that. Oh, yes. Uh, yeah. Like there's this kind of hidden realm that we're trying to, to get to. Mm -hmm. Or higher um, realm. Mm -hmm. Or higher. Yeah. Higher realm. And so another thing that they took issue with, they weren't, you know, they weren't into yoga. They were into Zelm. They did not like the term abstraction. They liked the term objectlessness, which I think, you know, mm, yeah. interesting. And interesting. then. Something I was actually really, really interested in, maybe just only I am interested in this, but I really love this, was um, there was an artist named Pavel Filonov, F-I-L-O-N-O-V, and he came up with this concept called world flowering, and he made up a word, and it's unpronounceable, but I'll just, it's called like sedelanost, it's S-D-E-L-A-N-N-O-S-T, sedelanost, and the whole idea is that this is very much attuned to how I feel in some ways about making art. Um, being well-made, finished, working continuously on a piece until it's considered, quote-unquote, made through consistent work 
the artist embodies his immortal soul in his art, and it can become an intermediary between humanity and the universe. So the idea of like working on something and crafting it in this very considered and consistent way embeds the work with this kind of like soul that can, and then it can stand on its own once the artist is completed. Yeah. I I love that. (laughs) I love that too. And Kandinsky believed that he, he um, broke with other theosophical ideas about how you had to go through these, like Steiner, he, he broke with Steiner who thought that you had to go through these steps of learned meditation. Uh, Kandinsky believed what you're talking about, which is that just by making an artwork, <laughs> our artworks were the shortcut to the spiritual realm, that they were um, a path for, for someone. Yes, very much. There. And that was a a big belief in the Netherlands as well. That was one of one of the things Mondrian really believed too. But before before I go to the Netherlands, I have one more Russian person I need to mention because this person is equally as fascinating. This person's name was Mikhail Matyushin. So it's M-A-T-Y-U-S-H-I-N. And he believed that he could see through the back of his head. The back and, of his head. Yes. He believed he could see through the back of his head. And he called it his internal eye. And he worked every day to try to see if he could, with his regular eyes, see beyond what he could see. Like try to practice seeing even a little bit further from his peripheral vision. Then he decided that he had a special nerve center in his brain that was a third eye. And that was called his internal eye. And that could see through the back of his head. And he literally believed this. Um, He also made a delightful painting called Self-Portrait as a Crystal. And I love it. It's wonderful. And he wrote, The slow rhythm of life beating in the inorganic life of a crystal. Yeah, it's a great painting. And another thing that's so interesting about Mattyushin is that he made these wooden sculptures that were recreations of Thought Forms. And Thought Forms was a book written by Annie Besant and her partner uh, Ledbetter, and they kind of would make these abstract colored shapes to describe feelings and also assign colors to feelings. And it it was a very, uh, I think it was like 1901 that it came out, but he was so inspired by this. He made these sculptural replicas of some of these thought forms, but they were just in rough hewn wood. And then he would play music and, or hear sounds and look at them. And then he would kind of uh, note if the color cast was different. So, for example, Mm -hmm. he would hear a low, rough noise, and he would feel like the sculpture looked redder. And then he might hear a light, sharp noise, and he'll look at the sculpture and think it looked bluer. So Mm -hmm. it was just, um, yeah, super. I just real. I couldn't get enough of the Russians. (laughs) To me, it was just endlessly fascinating, that whole section. And I think if you if you wanted to look at more, if you wanted to explore more of the thought forms, um, luckily that book is on Project Gutenberg. So if you go to gutenberg.org, um, look up thought forms. It's called The Thought Forms, A Record of Clairvoyant Investigations. You can see some of these beautiful illustrations. So if, for example, it'll be like a green kind of like abstract L with a point, and the title will just be simply Watchful Jealousy. 
or <laughs> or they'll it'll seem like there's like a spray of fireworks and they'll just be like sudden fright um or yeah, there were, there were all sorts of illustrations about what color symbology and also shapes and vibrations and waveforms and yeah it looks fascinating i would love to look at it more there's even one that's like orange like noodly shapes and it was like <laughs> and it's like the intention to know it's like okay yeah got it um so it looks like a fascinating book they even have like charts of colors and they they say what they mean and yeah it's just really interesting especially as an artist to see somebody kind of uh, visually depicting a thought is interesting to me yeah definitely so i'm not sure if, if everyone's getting tired i mean i have the netherlands yeah, we're, it's just we're it's mostly mondrian how about um i mean it's up to you amy do you want to share some some uh, key uh highlights from from the netherlands and then yeah i'll just do a couple of the, on, of the netherlands okay so here's the highlights they were sick of impressionism they wanted to shift spiritual values and pure expressionism they were kind of looking to replace religion with this. They thought the church was corrupt. You know, they were over it. And the artist was the new um, visionary. So Mondrian was described as, personally, as a shy, dark, serious, and friendly man. <laughs> That's quoted. <laughs> I just love shy, dark, serious, friendly. It's such a four strange adjectives. But anyway, yeah. um, again, he had the really strict Calvinist upbringing. Um, and so that's what kind of pushed him into looking for something more free, like theosophy. He loved his geometry predated cubism. He was he was before that. He was really into math. In fact, everyone in um, the Netherlands was super into math. Math was a big thrust uh, for them, especially the artists. We should say Mondrian was a member of the De Stille movement, which yes, was founded with artist Theo van Doesburg or Dersberg. Yes. Um, and Mondrian, after he, you know, he had done landscapes and he switched over to abstraction in 1908, he got there through Fauvism and Dutch theosophy and math. That's kind of how he got to abstraction. But his abstract project was, he called it neoplasticism. And it was a combination of cubism, math, theosophy, and he considered it the final phase of artistic evolution, aka the end of all art. Isn't that always every, what everyone says? And it yeah, never dies. Heard, Art never have dies. Have we heard that before? We've heard it before. Yeah. But it um, you know, but anyway, it was, you know, he thought he thought it was it. That was it. And he was dismayed because after he got to a certain point of radicality, the theosophical artists in his group did not get him anymore. And he said, quote, this is such a funny quote. He said, It was too revolutionary for the guys. <laughs> for the, the guys. Guy for the guys it was too revolutionary for the guys and he became really disillusioned and he just kind of like Helma F. Clint he just kind of pinned his hopes on the future people understanding him in the future and luckily for him it worked out um, <laughs> he's famous <laughs> thank you that was a very succinct wrap up of the, yeah was that was Netherlands Netherlands the through the filter of my brain <laughs> so um, um, now let's I wanted to pivot to um uh -huh. Uh, one of our uh, final sections, which I'm I'm calling Mandy's mystical potpourri. Uh, uh, please proceed, Mandy. Okay, so uh, you know what what we mean by the mystical potpourri is um, I, I read a couple more sort of key chapters in the book. One was an essay called "Transcending the Visible: The Generation of the Abstract Pioneers" by uh, Sixten Ringbaum, who is an art historian, 
And, um, and he talks about some of the things that Amy's already covered, a, a really a broad chapter hitting on um, artists from different countries and their influences. But he focuses a lot on Kandinsky and how Kandinsky was sort of key to this idea that what, what it was, it, there was an identity crisis going on. Like what if, if art was turning into non-objective uh, imagery, in, in other words, um, the object was leaving the picture plane and we're left with just colors and shapes, then what would replace the missing object? Um, so Kandinsky, you know, that's when he writes on the spiritual and art in 1912 and, and um, sort of, you know, expounds on this idea. And he was into synesthesia, as Amy said. Then, you know, people were reading all sorts of things. Write, writings were big at, at the time. There was Plato and the Neoplatonists who, you know, sort of espoused his ideas about um, all that is visible is an illusion and that true reality must be free from that which is visible. So, you know, really the deep questions of what, what is matter and what is, um, what is beyond it. Um, there was this idea that came out of Indian um, tantric teachings called Arupa, which meant uh, a sort of a higher plane from that which is visible and that, that there was this aspiration among people interested in spirituality toward a formless non-representational imagery, which would be on this higher plane called a Rupa. And that's paralleled by uh, Annie Besant and Charles Ledbetter's thought forms. Um, oh, cool, you know, cool. Ex experiments um, with, with images. They too believed in these, uh, and I can't find it right now, but there's this great sort of plate from the thought forms book that shows the different uh, levels of, of awareness and um, you know, planes, including the astral plane and the material plane, and then this higher Arupa um, which comes from from um, Buddhism. There was this interesting idea that comes out of this essay about parallel representation. This idea that actions and thoughts on the physical plane, that that which we can see, are paralleled on a higher spiritual plane, the arupa, right? Um, that which we cannot see. So as above, so below, right? A duality in that in that sense. And that objects have a hidden side of things. Again, that greater definition of the occult, the hidden. And that even people have higher bodies that are unseen. And that's what Edvard Munch gets into with his radiating auras around figures in his paintings. And um, Kandinsky was into this too. It's just that he wasn't into figuration at the time. Um, this went beyond painting into music with Wagner and, of course, literature with the... Um, transcendentalists and the romantic writers at the time. Mm -hmm. um, Hilma of Klint is mentioned in this essay too. Um, and there's a whole other essay devoted just to her in the book. But Ringbaum touches on Hilma of Klint because she too was interested in parallel representation um, between plants and organic forms and human relationships, between human relationships and the cosmos, sort of these parallels. And she arrives at her own visual language on her own, you know, away from Kandinsky and others who, who were at the time were moving toward abstraction. So you have this idea of parallel, parallel representation. And then there was also this sort of slow dematerialization of the image in painting, right? The, the, the identity crisis, abstraction as step-by-step -step dissolving of material objects in images. And, and also you know, veiling, like Kandinsky was so, kind of afraid to go full blast so he would like veil like a bible story he would veil he would like kind of veiled veiled images like uh, this is sort of the wall and this is sort of a figure but then it would be abstractified and 
or abstracted. I guess that's the word. Oh, true. That's so interesting. Yeah. I, he I wanted like an underpinning kind of still. Yes. Um, yeah, that's, that's important. Um, there's a quote here from Kandinsky that I loved that talks about this, um, this identity crisis, like that artists and thinkers at the time were going through about whether forms in the visible plane echoed those in the natural or higher, you know, Arupa plane, the, the, uh, the spiritual plane. Um, and this is what Kandinsky and Mondrian were up to. They were trying to find these forms that they felt expressed a true reality, right? Um, one that we couldn't see. So <laughs> Kandinsky says, if I could find it here, how do we, how do we, or the artists, oh, I'm sorry, this is a quote from, from the, the author, Ringbaum. How do we, or the artists know whether a form does follow natural laws? Well, Kandinsky had his answer ready. He says, hearken to the inner sound and submit to inner necessity. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> this may not be very helpful, uh, but to, to Kandinsky, it seemed convincing enough, you know, that, that really it was just about the artist's inner feelings, that that was the real sort of meaty subject. That was evidence enough. That's how you know that what it is that you're expressing is that which is on the invisible plane, you know, the higher spiritual plane because you feel it <laughs> because you have, you to, hearken. It so. yes, you have to hearken you have to hearken and <laughs> and yes heave inner sound submit submit and hearken inner... yes yeah. which is that's all you need really amy yeah submit um, and hearken i think that rings true yeah and then um and then you know certain other artists thought that math was what it was all about math was evident in nature we see geometry in nature yeah, and then there was this, I, I read this other essay um, by Linda Dalrymple Henderson called Mysticism, Romanticism, and the Fourth Dimension, which I found this so fascinating. The fourth dimension is defined as a higher reality beyond the three-dimensional visual perception. So again, that, that same idea of Arupa, which comes out of Indian. Uh, or, the, Indian or the realm unseen. Yeah. Like, uh, like and, and in a very matrix way, like we li we live in this reality, but there's this other secret reality kind of idea. Yes, that there's, yeah, there's this other plane that we can't see day to day or we can't perceive with our senses um, that you, one can only achieve through other means like meditation. And Henderson identifies three themes that are ties between, between the, you know, these different groups who are interested in this idea. And that would be that they all shared this concept of the infinite. And then there was this idea of the evolution of consciousness. And then this, um, this idea of philosophical monism, M-O-N-I-S-M, which means oneness, that the individual and the absolute or the spiritual plane are one, um, the individual and the cosmos. So these three ideas kind of go throughout. And, and it gets, it, she does a deep dive into Max Weber, the you know, Jewish American artist living in New York, Cool. And I just want to say, I wasn't, I wasn't that familiar with Max Weber's work before. I was vaguely familiar with him before, but I was confused because there's another Max Weber, which some of you may be familiar with. Oh. <laughs> do not, do not confuse the um, Jewish American painter who wrote a, a very important essay called The Fourth Dimension from a Plastic Point of View in Camera Work, which is a photography magazine, with the other Max Weber, the German Max Weber, who uh, lived slightly earlier in Munich, who was a like political scientist and theorist. But anyway, so Max Weber, he was friends with Apollinaire and Baudelaire. 
and um, you know these these romantic writers they all knew each other and they were they were interested in this idea of mixing higher space with a recog recognizable form. So some of these guys were not pushing abstraction to the extremes that Malevich and the suprematists were. They weren't for total abstraction, not yet. They believed that um, that you could mix in some of your higher space, you know, your geometric forms, your your auras, your non-objective imagery, as long as you also had some recognizable forms. To sort of right, they were more on the side of veiling. Yeah, they were hybrid. Hybrid, hybrid, uh, hybrid. It's hard to take that big step. Yeah. Whereas Malevich and those guys, Totlin, they were all for non-objectivity. But like Mondri Mon Mondrian was really worried that if he went to, uh, like he would kind of hide his theosophical ideas in his work. So like when you see horizontal and vertical lines, he's thinking in a theosophical way of like male, female, spirit, yes. matter. But those are hidden. He didn't want the viewer to know he was putting those in because yeah. uh, he thought it would be alienating. Yeah, exactly. The, I mean, I'm just going to, Amy, I think we're, we're going to, we're running long on time. So I'm just going to throw out one more interesting bit from this potpourri, you know. Um, well, there was this interesting idea, um, which was put forth by a writer named Uspensky. I'm looking for his, his first name, P.D. Uspensky. I don't remember if it, you know. Oh, I think name. I remember this person. Yeah, he he was an interesting writer, thinker, guy who wrote a lot about fourth dimension, this idea. Um, and he was influenced by Apollinaire and Baudelaire and also Max Weber. They all knew each other. And he, he wrote about this. Uh, he tried to define the fourth dimension. He said that it was a scary thing, you know, likening it to the abyss. Um, wow. And that there were three stages of experiencing the fourth dimension, the first of which was uh, sensing the infinite, which he said was the most terrifying. And let me just find what he says about that. Oh, no, um, I want to hear this. Yeah, it says, the sense of the infinite is the first and most terrible trial before initiation. Nothing exists. There you go, Amy, the nothing. Yeah, nothingness. Uh, Bring it to a, me. A little miserable soul feels itself suspended in an infinite void. Whoa. Then even the void disappears. <laughs> there is only infinity, a constant and continuous division and dissolution of everything. Wow. Um, That's so very Russian. Said, that was the worst. And he's know? Russian, right? He's a Russian writer. Oh, maybe. Um, yeah. yeah. It yeah, makes perfect probably. sense to yeah, me he that must, he's Russian. He must be. Um, so Uspensky, <laughs> you know, sort of talking about standing on the edge of the abyss. And then beyond that, then there's the second stage, which is recognizing illogicality. Once you are aware of the fourth dimension, you start to recognize that there is no left-right orientation, no gravity, no up-down orientation. So and almost like outer space. Yeah. That, um, well, and actually, it's interesting you say that because there were, um, you know, Newton and some of these other scientists at the time um, talked a lot about, uh, well, there was another obscure scientist whose name escapes me, who had just introduced the idea of hyperspace. Oh. Um, so quantum physics was just, you know, being born <laughs> in, in terms of public consumption you know, of it. So this idea that um, time and motion are mere illusions. And, you know, this is mind blowing stuff. Yeah, it's um, very, it's very matrix like. Yeah. And the, the other thing that I thought was fascinating about this, this kind of consciousness or this you know awareness of the fourth dimension uspensky says that language fails us at this point and a new language is needed new parts of speech that's a quote 
And there were other people who were into this idea. Gertrude Stein's prose also attempts at a new language. Um, you know, Max Weber and Picasso, oh, yeah. cubists. You're right. Um, romantic writers like Henry James. They were all into this idea that we need new language to um, to get across this new truth that we're uh, you know becoming aware of. Becoming wow. Aware yeah. Of That's wow. Yeah. So I thought that was really interesting. That was. Re thank you so much. That was. I loved that. That was, thank you so much for reading it that, that closely. Yeah, my pleasure. Well, I guess we, okay, so guys, this book is huge. We've only <laughs> scratched the surface. If you, very, uh, uh, very, very surface. So um, if you can find it on eBay, grab a copy, um, you know, dip in and out as you will. Enjoy the parts you like. If you want to enjoy the Russian part. I totally wholeheartedly recommend that starting with that part. That is the best in my opinion, <laughs> but they're all great. Um, we really enjoyed talking about this book and finding out what all the fuss was about. And I have to say, I get it now. Would you say Mandy? Oh yeah, I, I get it. And I, and I'm sad. I didn't know about this book earlier. There's so much, it's so rich and, um, you know, hefty, but, um, well worth the, the deep dive for sure. It's it's and it's not you. a lap book. It's not a lap book. You no. you need to have it on a firm table. <laughs> um, uh, it will crush your thighs. Yeah, not for reading in bed, not for reading in the car either, or, or standing in line. No, it's, no, it's, it's a like thigh. A book. It's a thigh crusher. But we but I I I get what the fuss is about. It's an amazing book. Glad I have it now. I get why everybody loves it. It's basically a work of art in its own right. <laughs> Absolutely. And thank um, you for inviting me on the spiritual quest. I, and I wouldn't have read it without you, Amy. Oh, you beat me to a bunch. I was going to say thank you, Mandy, so much for <laughs> coming on the quest. I know it was a lot to ask to uh, wade into these waters that were very deep waters, but I do appreciate so much having a partner in crime. Um, so two, two newbies, two newbies to the spiritual and art. But I feel like very educated now. And I'm, I'm so grateful that you um, partnered with me to, to host tonight. Thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. And I, and thank you. And I think that um, you, you could teach a class on, on the spiritual art now, Amy. <laughs> I don't know. I, I feel like there's got to be some people in the audience going, uh, I think she got like 60% of that wrong. I guess well, I feel like... <laughs> we had to condense. We had to condense it. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure I fact-checked. I double-checked everything I said, but god only knows <laughs> uh, but we appreciate so much taking the time tonight to listen to us talk about this book share in our glee thank you everyone good night everybody good night bye mandy talk to you soon Hi everyone, just breaking in here at the end. Um, I wanted to just give credit where credit is due and mention the scholars' names that we referenced in this talk. Of course, Maurice Tuckman, he is one of the main essay writers and helped compile the book. There's also Robert P. Welsh, Carol Blotkamp, Charles Eldridge, 610 Ringborn, Ake Font, John E. Bolt, Charlotte Douglas, Rose Carol Long, Linda Henderson, and W. Jackson Rushing. These are the 11 essayists that we profiled in our talk. Of course, there are six more that we did not cover. And also, if you do choose to buy the book, we recommend eBay because you can get cheaper copies there. Amazon has them, but they're a bit pricier. Thanks so much for listening.
you've been listening to Pep Talks for Artists. If you like this episode, please consider popping over to Apple Podcasts and giving us a rating or review. We're a fledgling podcast, so every little bit helps. Additional images that go with this episode are available on our Instagram at Pep Talks for Artists. Please follow us there to get the inside scoop. I really appreciate you stopping by and I'll see you next time. It was too revolutionary for the guys. <laughs> for the, the guys. guys.